Now, the question is, is there room for the U.S. in that power balance that China sees? Is there room for other countries or is it something that China really wants to dominate? Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program. I'm your host, Lisa Hyland. In our final podcast for 2020, we bring an episode from our Energy Futures Forum, a project that our team has managed for more than five years. This annual forum looks at three trends and their impacts on the energy sector over the next 10 years. This year, the overarching theme, of course, was COVID-19. We brought in our forum moderators to talk about their takeaways from the discussions. My CSIS colleague, Nico Safos, talks about the transportation sector. Ethan Zindler with Bloomberg New Energy Finance looks at the electric power sector, and Talia Smith with Garnet Strategies looks at China. Energy Program Director Sarah Ladislaw leads this discussion, so let's turn it over to her now. Welcome to this episode of Energy 360. Uh, Today we're going to talk about energy and climate post-COVID-19. Today's a special episode. Very pleased to have with us Ethan Zindler, Taya Smith, and Nico Safos, uh, all affiliated in some way, shape, or form uh, with CSIS, uh, and served as moderators at an annual event that we do in the Energy Security and Climate Change Program called the Energy Futures Forum. Um, The Energy Futures Forum is basically designed to look at trends that are emerging today, but have the potential to shape the energy and climate landscape in significant ways over the next 10 years. So usually what we do is we spend time looking at different trends, whether they're geopolitical or technological or policy oriented. We pick them out and then we commission papers and we have a conversation with knowledgeable people about you know what is the, the potential for those issues to fundamentally change the energy system in ways that are important for us to recognize over the next 10 years. And and the underlying logic here is there's tons of things that people explore over a multi-decadal time frame in a lot of energy outlooks. There's a lot of things that people explore, you know, over the next 6 to 9 months or over the next election cycle. But there's not as much analysis of this medium-term time frame. And so this year 2020, like everything else, is a little strange uh, in that we actually had an overarching theme for our Energy Futures Forum given to us by a once in a century uh, global pandemic, uh, COVID-19. And so the unifying theme for us for this year was uh, that we were in the midst of a pandemic, uh, certainly not through it, and experiencing probably the largest shock to the energy system that we've ever experienced, uh, certainly in acute terms, but but definitely what we wanted to investigate is whether or not the shock would materialize in longer term changes for the energy system. And so we divided the conversation uh, into three sections, one, looking at the transportation sector, two, looking at the electric power sector, and then three, looking at what has already been a tense and, and somewhat tumultuous relationship between the United States and China, and really sort of navigating the geopolitics of, of that relationship going forward. And so Uh, What we want to do today is talk about what we learned at that conference and what we uh, have been thinking about subsequently uh, under this theme of uh, of the world post-COVID-19 for energy and climate issues. And so each of uh, our guest participants today are going to talk a little bit about you know, what we what we discussed, what were the main insights from the conference on each of those sectors, and then we'll have a, a discussion about what we've thought and observed um, um, beyond that. So I'm going to start with Nikos and ask you, you know, you were the moderator for the transportation sector. What were we exploring? What were some of the key takeaways? What were some of the themes that were uncovered in that discussion? 
Well, thank you, Sarah. You know, if you think about COVID-19 and transportation and mobility, they're really inseparable. What did we do? We started working from home. We stopped commuting. We stopped getting onto buses. We stopped flying around to go on vacation or to go to conferences and business meetings. And so for a lot of people, one of the main ways they experienced COVID-19 was in a change in how they moved around. Uh, Some of us started walking in our neighborhoods or picking up biking. And so you really have to think about all the different ways in which the transportation system has been built around movement and suddenly the movement stopped. So we explored three different themes in our conversation. One, talking about oil demand and the impact on the refining sector. Two, talking about electric vehicles. And three, looking at public transportation. On the oil demand side, obviously you had a huge shock to the system, uh, especially in the spring. And what we saw was refiners struggling. Uh, A lot of refiners already announcing that they would shut down operations. Um, We have more closures possibly coming. And a sector that was really had structural challenges, but the shock of COVID pushed refiners over the edge. So we talked about what refiners were doing better or worse. What were the things that protected refiners and didn't? And, And obviously some familiar themes around complexity and integration being an asset for refiners came up in our discussion. On the electric vehicle angle of the conversation, you know, we had a really strong year in 2019 in terms of electric vehicles and obviously vehicle sales for internal combustion engines as well as EVs were hit in the beginning of the pandemic. But what we talked about was that EVs were hit less. The sales of EVs were more resilient than those for internal combustion engines. And there were perhaps a couple of reasons for that. One is from the start, governments saw electric vehicles as a way to sort of stimulate the economy. So they made more money available. They pumped money uh, to incentivize sales. Also, perhaps EVs are still targeting a more affluent Uh, part of the consumer base. So the people that were buying EVs maybe weren't as hard hit. Um, So as a result, because EVs have been so resilient, the market share of EVs has actually really gone up in a bunch of places because they've done so much better than internal combustion engines. The public transportation side was really interesting because from the start, you go back to March, April, there was this sense that public transportation and, and the virus were interconnected, that you were getting on buses and you're spreading the virus. So people abandoned public transportation a lot faster than they abandoned other forms of transport. And in the U.S. in particular, this came at a really bad time because especially for the last five years, you've had declining ridership, especially around buses. And so you had a sort of structural decline and then you have a really sharp fall as you go into the spring and into the summertime. And we understand that this is linked to equity because the people that take public transportation, and especially buses, tend to be sort of demographically and economically different from the average population. And so we talked about what that fall in ridership could mean for the medium and long-term sustainability of the public transportation system. We know 
that we need public transportation to have a sustainable transportation system because it's much more efficient and lower carbon and lower energy intensive to transport lots of people together. And so we had a lot of conversations, and we can get into that in the conversation here, about how easy it will be for public transport to recover from the shock. Great. Thanks, Nikos. And I think it's been interesting to note that a lot of the conversation in in the presentations were about the observations that we've had so far in the downturn and that in places where there were already policies in place to incentivize purchasing of electric vehicles, those types of incentives, those types of structures and policies really insulated some of those sectors from some of the worst impacts, whereas public transport, as we've seen in you know, sort of news story after news story, uh, even in the last several weeks, w- w- was already struggling and not very well insulated from from these types of shocks. So we'll talk about in, in a little bit what the the longer term implications might be. Ethan, turning to you for a minute, you know the electric power sector, at least reputationally, seems a little less hard hit than transport and oil and gas. You know things that were the the oil sector that we were thinking about and talking about, particularly in the downstream aspects of the transportation sector conversations. But what were some of the main themes uh, in the electric power sector conversation? So yeah, we we definitely did talk about COVID, and maybe I'll come on to that um, maybe in a minute. Um, but, uh, you know, look, the conversation took place against the backdrop of a really rapidly changing segment of of the energy world. And the power sector has been really uh, very much in transition for a decade now. Um, and then COVID arrived. So we were moving rapidly from a reliance on, on coal, which was used to be about half of our power to maybe as little as 20% this year, maybe even a little less than that. Um, natural gas uh, use has grown by about 50%. Renewables have almost doubled over that time. So there's just a lot going on um, in the power sector in terms of moving, moving towards decarbonization. Uh, and as part of that, also a ton of pressure on pricing in the wholesale market, a lot of downward pressure, um, mainly because um, gas is super cheap uh, and that's keeping power prices down. Um, also because renewables have effectively zero marginal cost when they bid into competitive markets. So these were the big kind of changes that were served as the background of our conversation. And then I think in the foreground, of course, were the questions around what the election might mean. Um, and whether or not there'll be some kind of uh, additional change uh, in a new administration and or a new Congress, which we didn't know about at the time. And frankly, we still don't entirely know about, but we have some better idea. Um, and then there were some really interesting papers presented that um, that kind of got at these questions in, in different kinds of ways. Um, um, and they really, I thought, were very thought-provoking and, and brought up some interesting conversations. Um, you know, one of, one of them... Um, talked a lot about the sort of coal uh, uh, renewable uh, strange bedfellow partnership that exists in a number of countries where um, you have countries building out a lot of coal and a lot of renewables at the same time and not actually necessarily reducing their overall CO2 emissions. Um, and for various reasons, these two things have gone hand in hand. And it's, you know, uh, China has built like 450 and maybe 500 gigawatts of coal in the last 10, 12 years. It's an incredible build out, but they're also by far and away the biggest market for renewable energy, building anywhere from 40 to 60 gigawatts of, of wind and solar a year. So these are these are big, big markets um, uh, for everything. So we looked a little bit at that kind of odd um, pairing and 
and why that's frankly problematic if you're thinking about climate. It doesn't really solve the problem. Um, we also talked a good bit about transmission and the importance of uh, high voltage transmission and how little the U.S. is doing in this area and how incredibly important that could be if you want to um, take advantage of the so-called Saudi Arabia of wind in the in the plain states or the Saudi Arabia of solar out in uh, the desert states. Um, that's great if you to have those resources, but if you can't move the juice to where people need it, not so great. Uh, and then the last thing I did want to just mention, which was also one of the conversations, was specifically around um, COVID. Um, and uh, one of the papers that, that we discussed looked at how electricity usage has been affected this year. Uh, and as you alluded in your question, um, you know, it's not been as dramatic uh, a downturn for um, electricity as uh, we've seen in the transportation sector, uh, and partly because, uh, look, we're all home. Um, you know, we're, we're recording this podcast today. I, I would have been at my desk at work using some electricity there. I'm instead sitting here at my desk at home with some lights on. Uh, and by the way, four of us all zooming simultaneously and using juice that we probably wouldn't have been using if we were all doing our regular lives at school and at work. So, you know, it has netted out to some degree, although electricity consumption is down this year uh, overall by a bit, uh, just not a ton. Uh, and it's had some other interesting implications on the power markets and renewables as well. So I'll leave it at that. We can come back on any of those. Yeah, it was certainly interesting to see when we were investigating the potential implications for the electric power sector in the context of COVID-19, that there's adjustments, right? I think that was one of the takeaway messages is, yeah, the market needs to adjust a bit because there's overcapacity in some places and not as much in others. And, and there's patterns that are different, but it's not anything that is either from an engineering standpoint, a systems management standpoint, uh, economic standpoint, it's not going to do immeasurable damage. So it was uh, really the conversation reverted back to what you said, which are some of the, just the very large questions we have about the, the fundamental changes going on in the electric power system. Taya, turning to you, the conversation about China was as focused on the energy and climate landscape in China as it was uh, China's external behavior, both from a geopolitical standpoint, but then also, you know, things it's doing like the Belt and Road Initiative and things like that. So what were some of your observations and takeaways from that conversation? So in our session, we focused on three different things. So China from three different directions. One was China's internal capabilities. Is it actually able to do the things that it says it's going to? Secondly, were the Belt and Road implications? And thirdly, this kind of broader set of geopolitical dynamics. What is this world that China is intervening into? In the first, we, we had our discussion just after the announcement of China's carbon neutrality goal. That is, that they were going to reach carbon neutrality by 2060. Uh, and that really set the tone for much of the conversation because obviously a 15-year outlook puts you right looking forward as to what China is going to do next. In general, there's agreement from pretty much everybody that China is not, has not been on track to reach a carbon neutrality point, but that this pledge from Xi Jinping was really to set the bureaucracy to work. Now we've made the statement, now everybody has to figure out how to get there. And we're waiting at this point to see if there really is going to be an absolute emission cap for 2025. Certainly a lot of the ministries have been working hard towards this goal, 
uh, for many years, but not with having the full support of the Chinese government. So that was the key indicator there. How they're going to get there, really, it's going to be technology. It's the clear winner. Batteries, hydrogen, CCS, all things that China's been focused on for much time. However, the challenge is the path that China's currently on is really to deal first in the power sector. Um, where the reliance upon coal continues to be the most important. They can add renewable capacity. It's not the problem. The problem is getting that capacity onto the grid and then working out the politics between the different participants in the grid to see how they can reach their goals most effectively while keeping the right number of people employed. What comes clear about China when you look at it from the internal side with this big goal ahead and sort of the on-the-ground realities is a series of contradictions. Got a short-term trajectory that it's at odds with its long-term goal of carbon neutrality. Much like in the Belt and Road, China's energy goals are set, but how it gets there is going to have to be very flexible and um, dynamic in how it goes about it. Um, and when China talks about being self-sufficient, not having to depend upon other countries, um, that can't mean that it shuts itself off either from the global economy, global markets, or future markets that China itself is looking at being able to sell into. So with this large number of contradictions, you come to the question around the Belt and Road Initiative. And BRI is perhaps the biggest contradiction that China faces right now in that it is critically important that China develops these long-term relationships with the new markets. These are the Asian markets that continue to grow, Africa, parts of Latin America. These are the markets that they've looked at, and they said they, they have unmet needs in these markets, and we want to make sure that we can develop uh, both a dependency and an interrelationship with those countries for the future. That involves setting standards. Uh, that involves uh, making sure that these countries have reasons to stay engaged with China. Some of the ways that they're going about doing that are really open and upfront, as in a country like Laos would say that it needs electricity, and so the Chinese are helping the Laotian government find the cheapest fastest available electricity for the country. But that, of course, is setting in train another 50 years of coal-fired power for that country and potentially some challenges they'll meet going down the road. The key to Belt and Road, though, is that it's not really the broader, well-thought-out plan that we like to think of it from the U.S. perspective. Much more important is that Belt and Road is evolving it's changing all the time. And even within the Chinese government, they're focused on trying to figure out how to keep it going in a productive, positive way. And that is at odds many times, given what the recipient countries are asking for, with some of China's own ambitions and own goals that it set for itself, carbon neutrality being one of those. The last kind of place to think about would be uh, the U.S.-China relationship right now. Um, we've got China in a place where it is very much focused on being able to extend its wings. Um, it sees itself as a world player. And I think for the most part, everyone else in the world is understanding China in that context as well. Whether you're worried about its uh, decisions to hand how it's handling technology and how it's handling um, sort of... A, big adjustments in international balance of power. Those pieces are part of China's goal and role for being um, one of the most powerful countries around. Now, the question is, is there room for the U.S. in that power balance that China sees? Is there room for other countries? Or is it something that China really wants to dominate? 
These are all questions that came up in our discussion is very important when you think about what happens with a Biden administration. Will Biden be able to go back and say uh, the U.S. and China should work together closely on climate change, on energy, future energy sources? The overall feeling from our group was that it's going to be quite difficult to engage with China the way that it was in the Obama administration. China has moved beyond that. It's been very clear um, that they're not as needing to engage and have support from the U.S. China's moving out on its own, and the U.S. is going to need to figure out how we want to engage with this new vision that China is setting for itself. It also is very clear that um, China is quite focused on this idea of national champions, that we need to find ways for companies to be able to compete with China and Chinese companies that have the support and background of the Chinese government. I would say the last part um, that's going to be quite difficult for the Biden administration is just understanding how even if the administration wants to work constructively with the Chinese government, it's going to have a lot of trouble from Congress. So, for example, how would you cooperate on climate policy when Congress wants to boycott the Olympics in 2022, where China is going to be holding the Winter Olympics, or declare what's going on in Xinjiang as a, a genocide? Sort of the dynamics from Congress will make it extremely difficult for Biden administration to really veer that far off of the Trump administration trajectory with China. Thanks, Taya. I mean, I think your point about contradictions, uh, it was really interesting to see how each of the speakers identified areas where China has internal contradictions uh, that will need to get worked out because it has so many different objectives that are very large uh, that in and of themselves would sort of indicate that they'd be headed in one direction, whether that's their economic policy or their their trade policy or their emissions you know policy and objectives, and then you know have these other objectives that don't don't necessarily align with those and so there was a lot of you know between the speakers and even within the speakers this recognition that China's got a lot of uh, competing aims that it's going to have to work out over the next, you know, five or 10 years. But, you know, for all of us who are not uh, China watchers, we're like, well, how are they going to reconcile that? And it was like, well, that's their job. They'll figure it out. They've just been told. So so there was a, there was a lot of uh, a lot of discussion about that. Um, so I, I want to go back and maybe start with you, Ethan. You know, one of the things we try to do in these conversations is figure out what's going to stick. Right. So, you know, what are the were the big elements that were part of the conversation about the, the changing electric power sector, given all of its dynamism, that would turn these you know, near-term impacts of COVID-19 into something that would be lasting or durable or, or impactful over the next you know, 10 years or so? And, and what were the, the, those elements for you? Well, I mean, to get kind of in the weeds a little bit, I mean, one of the first questions is around just, you know, we talked before a little bit about total volume of consumption of electricity. There's also the question, though, of, of when and how people are using uh, electricity and whether or not our usage patterns will change, our time of day usage patterns might change in some fundamental way. Um, if, say, people are, you know, let's say 
not everyone's going to work at home forever, you know, knock on wood. But um, but but if, in fact, we, we go to a world in which there's more flexibility about homework um, and so you have a less of a, of a sort of a, a stress on the system at certain hours and a little bit of a flattening, which might be a good thing because pre-COVID, you have you had these very sharp rises in peak demand that would occur for electricity towards late afternoon and into the evening. Then things would, of course, die down overnight, and then they kind of pick back up, but all more or less simultaneously, starting at about seven in the morning or so. And so, if we could smooth some of that out, um, that would be a good thing, I think, overall, because because that kind of variability puts stress on the overall power system, which is pretty hard to uh, to find clever ways to address uh, in ways that make sure that everybody gets paid and can make money in the ways that they need to. And that's one of the larger problems that we're facing. So I think that's one interesting potential side note that we'll see out of this. I think the other question is whether or not we'll see um, people become even more keen to become energy self-sufficient in whatever way that, you know, might mean, um, uh, you know, or whatever way that they think that it means, um, you know, putting PV on your roof, maybe it's getting a battery so that you can feel, um, you know, more secure. Um, I'm, I'm kind of putting that a little bit in fake air brackets only because, you know, the reality of it is that you're still connected. You still need to be connected to the grid in, in, in the vast majority of cases. It's, it's, it's pretty much an impracticality now for someone to completely get off the grid um, at the moment in most cases, given the technologies and the costs. Um, but it is something that people are getting more, I think, interested in. And that's not just a COVID effect. That's uh, the effect of the wildfires um, and various other events that have um, made climate uh, change, unfortunately, a real part of people's lives already. Yeah, no, absolutely. Nikos, what about in the transportation sector? What were some of the either durable, potential durable impacts or things that you think are worth watching over the next 10 years? Yeah, well, let me start with what I thought is a, is a durable non-impact in the sense of I think the electric vehicle story is one of those things that, you know, is, isn't really going to be reshaped by COVID. I mean, the economics of EVs are just getting so much stronger year after year, you know, listening to some of the work that Ethan and his colleagues at Bloomberg and EF are doing. Um, so that, to me, was a clear story of governments are pushing for this. The economics are getting better. The policy signals are getting better. 2000 is going to be a good year. This was a, a a trend that really wasn't shaken by by COVID. The two real inflection points for me are uh, public transportation. Uh, you know, you had this real structural weakness in the sector. You have this perception uh, around health, which it turns out as we accumulated more evidence. Uh, wasn't real, this fear that you would sort of catch the virus if you were to get on public transportation. But it really lingers as a concern for people. And so will people be slower to get back on public transportation or were they scared of public transportation? And so they bought a car during COVID. And so maybe they're never coming back to public transportation. Those kind of things we're not quite sure. And frankly, the finances of public transport. I mean, you're going to cut service you're going to maybe lay off people, that's not going to be very easy to pick up again. And so I think that the ability of the sector to recover, and a lot of it is obviously going to depend on what what comes out of Congress, and we can talk about that. Um, I think the last thing, which we still have no idea about, is behavioral change. And I think there we have two unknowns. One is, 
what behavior is going to stick. I think if you ask people that you would like working from home in April, you would get a different answer than if you asked them today whether they like working from home. But we also are not quite sure what working from home really means. Uh, you know, the IA has done some interesting work that shows that if you don't have a long commute uh, to work, uh, you actually might have more energy use and more CO2 emissions when you work from home. One of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is what impact working from home has if you decide that working from home is lovely, but it would be nicer if I had more space at home. Where can you find more space? You have to move away from the city center. So yes, maybe you work from home, so you don't have the commute, but then you live a life that is entirely dependent on a private car. So all your trips to the store, to the supermarket, to the theater, to the cinema, all those take place on a car. And when you do that, public transportation becomes weaker too. So it's not just that we are not quite sure what kind of behavioral change is going to stick. Um, air travel is another one. You know, people, I think, sometimes enjoy that they weren't getting on planes every other week. But after a while, you maybe kind of want to get back out there and see some places. But we're also not quite sure how, when you think through the second and third tier effects, what the impact on energy is going to be. So that is what I took away from the conversation was a lot of things that we're not quite sure if they're going to happen. And if they do happen, what is the impact on energy and, and emissions? Yeah, I think in the transportation conversation, even more than the others, the the ability to work from home or envision a different kind of work lifestyle, work life balance lifestyle, like those have the potential to have the most durable impacts on the sector. And they're just stuff we can't know until well, we get back to some semblance of normalcy. So it'll be interesting to to watch some of those metrics that you that you suggested. Taya, what about on the China dynamics? I mean, you started to talk about this a little bit, but one of the refrains here was, you know, the U.S. has been hit hard. China hasn't. You know, has this conferred some sort of long term advantage to them uh, or changed the what was already, as you, you mentioned, a very dynamic geopolitical environment? What were some of the lasting impacts that, that you thought came up in the conversation? Well, so what's fascinating is China got back to work really fast, right, compared to we're still not there. Their kids have been back in school now for six months or more. And so life has pretty much gone back to normal, with the exception of taking temperatures everywhere and wherever there are cases coming out, the areas get shut down very quickly. But for the most part, China's back to work and there aren't the same impacts due to behavior that we could potentially see here. Um, There are changes in terms of the overall economy and the cost of oil uh, that have an impact on the decisions that Chinese companies and businesses have made, which make it that much more difficult, right? That much more reliant upon SOEs and fossil fuels, which will make the ultimate transition to a lower carbon economy more difficult. Uh, But in the big picture, things haven't changed nearly as much for China as they have for us. And I don't think we'll see those same changes in behavior um, the same way. Now, that also can be because the Chinese government has taken a much 
more firm hand within China than it had even previously. We've been watching over the last few years um, as China's developing things like their social credit score and what's gone on in Xinjiang, where the Chinese government becomes more and more present in people's lives, which reduces the amount of uh, sort of individual waverings that we might see overall. So um, I think, you know, where the Chinese government sets the tone, people are going to be following that fairly clearly once they figure out what it all means. The, the piece that's interesting to me is going to be around, um, you know, as the U.S. comes forward in our transition, what happens with the Chinese uh, government. The you know, only country that can really make China move faster on reducing its carbon emissions is going to be the U.S. And while change has to come from within China, they're not going to do something for the U.S., the speed at which they go about this change could very much be influenced by how quickly the U.S. goes about changing our own uh, climate change response. Yeah, and one of the interesting things I thought came out of that conversation was everybody kind of strategically identified an opportunity for China because they've fared so differently than other countries in this pandemic to, to really you know show their competence uh, on a global stage and benefit from you know from the disparity and sort of the the responses between say Europe and the United States and China but but at the same time a, a few of our our experts sort of remarked that they haven't really done that well capitalizing on that opportunity in fact some of the sort of aggressive foreign policy maneuvers or even the efforts to you know disseminate PPE to other places they just haven't you know taken up that opportunity as much as they could have but I think you know how that will play out over the you know the coming you know five or ten years is is still an open question as you said earlier I want to turn really quickly to to end our conversation on on what ended up being kind of a defining pivot for each of these conversations. And Taya, you've talked a little bit about this already. There's two things that people kept saying throughout the course of the day, which was pre-election, which is, well, depending on the outcome of the election, and coupled into the depending on the outcome of the election comment was also a presumption not just about the changing direction of the U.S., depending on if it was a Trump administration or a Biden administration, but also the presumption of potential stimulus, right, like directed at changing the trajectory of these sectors. So I just wanted to talk about, we know the outcome of the election now, and, uh, you know, how that has shaped some of the things we were talking about in the context of those discussions. But, you know, what what questions do we still have uh, now that we, we know the outcome of the election? So maybe... Uh, we'll start with Nikos and then uh, and then go to Ethan and then go to Taya. Yeah, I think that to go through the three different dimensions in our conversation, I mean, if you think about the demand for oil, uh, you know, I wouldn't presume to suggest that the president of the United States can shape the trajectory of global oil demand. But you've seen an overarching bearishness develop over the last few months. And on the margin, I can't imagine that the election result makes you more bullish for medium and long-term oil demand. Uh, I'm not quite sure it really makes you that bearish because, again, one has to be realistic about how much influence the President of the United States has. But I think that's one change. Uh, And you're seeing that ripple through a number of forecasts and how people think about the long-term oil consumption. On the public transportation side, I think there's sort of two key questions. One is over financial support, a lot of the transit uh, agencies have used their money from the CARES package and 
and they really need additional money and you're seeing them announce that they will cut service further, even uh, here in our hometown of Washington, D.C., uh, you know, D.C. Metro talked about cutting back service severely if they don't get additional funding. So I'm not quite sure, depending on the day, one is more or less pessimistic about additional money uh, coming out of D.C., but I think that's one area where you really have to believe that uh, President-elect Biden wants uh, he comes into office, if there hasn't been another round of stimulus until then, we'll try to make a push for it. But the other thing that becomes clear, when you look at the platform, there is a commitment to really developing public transit in cities above 100,000 people. And we haven't really seen that strategic commitment to public transit. How much can you do without spending money? That's a good question. I happen to think you can do a lot because some transit isn't very expensive. Some transit is. But uh, as I like to point out to people, this country transported more people on public transit 100 years ago than it did in 2019. So there's huge potential for additional transit in this country. And a president that has a strategic commitment to transit could really make a difference. The final thing on electric vehicles is, you know, I think people identify the president-elect as a car guy. He's passionate about cars. He likes cars. He understands the car industry and what it does for American manufacturing in general. So I think he will make a push for some kind of package that helps Detroit retool and really prepare to create the vehicles of the future. What does that look like? Does it get paired with, you know, cafe standards and the California waiver and sort of all that conversation or not? We'll kind of have to see how the politics play out. But this is clearly a person who understands the need for the United States to be manufacturing the cars of the future. And I think that's an area where besides the more thorny questions on energy and and carbon dioxide emissions, car manufacturing, I think, is probably a bigger consensus area, even if the politics are still very messy. What about uh, Ethan on the electric car side? Well, I mean, there's a lot going on. I mean, I think the first thing, obviously, is, okay, now we've got the results of the election, uh, sort of. Uh, we don't we don't know who will control the Senate. Although that said, it, it, even if Democrats prevail, it'll be very, very narrow. But that is still an open question. And so to my mind, that at least kind of draws the line between whether you're talking um, about regulation uh, only or regulation plus legislation. Because I think we, we do think that the Biden administration will, will try and take actions through regulatory actions as much as they can on certainly on transportation, uh, you know, and, and automobile standards and other things, um, and then try and pull whatever regulatory lever they can to try to get to um, uh, getting to a 0% par- uh, power sector by 2035. And frankly, I, I have a little trouble envisioning how you could do that through regulation, um, maybe some very elaborate um, re- rethink of the clean power plan. Uh, although I have my doubts about how that might work, but that but if you wanted to give it a shot regulatorily, that would be, I guess, how you do it. Uh, the bigger question is about legislation, I would say. And then if you had a Democratic Congress, could you have something along the lines of a, of a national clean energy standard that could be considered, you know, maybe even something with the word carbon in it could be considered, although, you know, that, that, that seems to be, a, a, unfortunately, a bit of a dirty word for some people in Congress. Um, 
And then a more immediate thing, and this is the thing that I think probably is somewhat less contingent on, on what happens in Georgia and the Senate, is around just stimulus. And, uh, you know, I, I would kind of make, try to make the case that the uh, American Recovery and Re Reinvestment Act of 2009, which was one of the big stimulus bills, was was the most important um, renewable energy piece of legislation ever passed because of the volume of support that it provided um, for clean energy through a variety of different um, efforts. So, you know, this time around, could we see something um, like that? Could it be an extension of tax credits? Could it be making the tax credits so-called refundable so that you can get them in the form of cash uh, to some percentage? You know, that kind of immediate injection of support to the industry, you know, in theory, we could see come out of uh, some kind of a stimulus bill because it does it does feel like there's at least a consensus that, that something more needs to be done um, about the U.S. economy now. And I think that even Republicans can probably get on board with that. It does look like there's some sort of outlines of that emerging at this point. Now, whether or not there'll be Republicans will be open to having that include some support for clean energy is a big question. But I do think that that's sort of the, the, the nearest term vehicle and also the most likely sort of vehicle that's out there for something to help um, in terms of decarbonizing the power sector. Yeah, I agree with all of that, Ethan. I think one additionally important point is that since the time of this discussion and, and the outcome of the election, you've got groups you know, like the IMF, lots of global institutions saying, no, we need to do this on a global scale, right? So that stimulus, that call for stimulus, even though, you know, countries have, you know, spent huge amounts of money on fiscal and other types of stimulus so far, saying, no, we actually need to do more than that, pointing out infrastructure and energy infrastructure in particular as areas that could be very catalytic in making up for the shortfalls uh, in the economy and output, not just here in the United States or in countries that have been hard hit, but in the developing countries as well. So uh, it, it certainly does feel like there's a, an additional global appetite for this kind of uh, continued stimulus. Taya, you had mentioned earlier some of your thoughts on on the Biden administration and and what their uh, both proclivities would be, you know, vis-a-vis -vis China, but also what some of the challenges would be. Any thoughts, you know, now that we've got the outcome of the election and and just this question about how China might want to position itself in terms of these broader global stimulus initiatives or anything else you wanted to add about the outcome of the election and and what that might mean for for what you were thinking about on China? Well, so I think the question that we had going into the discussion was how serious is China about its carbon neutrality pledge? Is it just a political statement or is there anything really to it? Um, and and we came to the conclusion that there's both, it's said for political reasons, um, it was, wasn't entirely out of the blue. It was important for China to change perceptions globally of uh, where it was with COVID, right? Because it's attempted to reach out to countries and take advantage of its rapid COVID recovery, but that's really been overshadowed by the fact that COVID came from China and was mismanaged there originally, which is how so many of us have, around the world have ended up suffering from it. So the announcement on carbon neutrality really comes not as a change in China's path or anything different in the way that China is approaching the world, but really that it needed to do something um, to show everybody that it is a good guy, that China is going to take responsibility for its carbon emissions and it's going to be a leader in the world. So I guess I sit here now and say that the real question we have is, 
Is the U.S. going to be able to move fast enough to take advantage of this, not just on the climate side, though certainly climate action at a national level from the U.S. could completely change the game that China is trying to intervene in and essentially shorten up the time frame that China has to move a lot, but also how are we going to be responding to what China is doing on standards and its role in places like the World Health Organization um, or attempts to really change the direction that international organizations are moving globally. What is going to be our response um, to see China as a competitor, but also as a legitimate um, influence within the international community? Uh, So I think those are the big questions now is, what are we going to do? And it's going to be up to the Biden administration to weave a very careful uh, line between what Congress might be thinking and want to do with what uh, other allies around the world are interested in doing with us and how much national action we can take to put the pressure up. Well, that's excellent. Listen, Taya, Ethan, Nikos, uh, we thank you for moderating what were some really excellent discussions and then recapturing them for us here today in this Energy 360 podcast. Um, For all of our listeners, we are going to be making the foundational papers for this discussion public, so you'll be able to access those uh, on our website. So please, if you want to take a deeper dive into any of the the papers that fed uh, into this discussion, we certainly welcome uh, you to do so. But thanks again, Ethan and Nikos and Taya for capturing that discussion today for us. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks to Nikos, Ethan, Taya, and Sarah for that discussion and peek into the Energy Futures Forum. We'll be releasing the background papers from EFF, so keep an eye out for those. And as always, thanks for listening. We value your feedback, so let us know what you liked and what else you'd like to hear from Energy 360 in 2021. You can find more episodes wherever you listen to podcasts and at CSIS.org. Follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy.